The Enigma of Oaks Ames, Oaks Ames Symposium, Stonehill College, September 21st. The second speaker this morning is Jay Wickersham. He will speak on Oaks Ames, traveling towards the Union Pacific. Uh, our, next, our next speaker uh, will be Jay Wickersham, and I'd like to talk about uh, Chris Milford also. Chris and Jay have been collaborating on research and projects centered around Northeastern, the Ames Shovel Works, and H.H. Richardson for many years. I'm talking over 20 years, maybe 30 years. Chris has done a lot of research on water power, so I, I always enjoy my, my conversations uh, with them. Uh, they were instrumental in the formation and successful advocacy of the preservation of the Ames Shovel Works in Northeastern in 2008, and have continued their interest both in Northeastern and the Richardson buildings to these days. And I remember Chris's phone call to me, I'd only met him a few months before, and this is around 2007, 2008, and he said, Fred, you know what they're trying to do to the shovel works? And uh, that, was, that was the beginning. So there was the alarm was, the alarm was rang by, uh, by Chris. Um, their presentation today will be uh, made by, by Jay, lawyer, architect, educator, and author, with Chris Milford of Richardson's, quote, Richardson's death, Ames's money, and the birth of the modern architectural firm. Jay. And, and Jay, you're speaking, right? Okay. And Jay Wickersham. Okay. okay. Well, th thank you very much, uh, Fred, and um, thanks to Nicole for um, putting this all together. And it's, it's such a pleasure to uh, get a chance uh, to be back in Northeastern, um, and to be with uh, so many of the people who were instrumental in saving the shovel works. And that's actually going to be really the core of Chris's and my presentation is the physical um, plant of the shovel works, which we believe is really one of the most important 19th century factory complexes in the country. That, that is really the text that we have to work with. Um, as well as uh, two buildings across the street from the Shovel Works, uh, the Oliver Ames Free Library and the Oaks Ames Memorial Hall, uh, which we're going to invite you to look upon as architectural portraits of the two brothers, uh, conveying something of how they were seen by their families and contemporaries. And like Ed also, I want to really give um, enormous thanks to uh, Greg Gaylor because it's really thanks to his research um, as well as to Ed's research uh, that we know so much about the business history. So I'm really going to be picking up where Ed um, left off um, as the reins were handled, handed over to Oaks and to Oliver Jr., um, who then turned the family business uh, by now the Oliver Ames and Sons Shovel Company uh, into what would become the basis of the biggest industrial fortune of a 19th century New England. And um, also in the process, two other uh, aspects of Chris's and my presentation. Um, we are in the process of reviewing all of the drawings of H.H. Richardson and his office at the Houghton Library in Harvard uh, for an upcoming publication by the Princeton Architectural Press. And so one of the things that we'll have an opportunity to do is to share some of the drawings that show the design process for the Oaks Ames Memorial Hall. Uh, so that's, that's a rare treat. 
And uh, finally, we'll uh, close with a few words about the preservation of the shovel works themselves, which uh, so many of you in this room were a part of. So it's important to understand that, that this, this complex, um, the shovel works complex that we see today, grew out of a disaster. On March 2nd, 1852, the original shovel shop in the adjacent storehouse in Northeastern on the island site that Ed described burned entirely to the ground. The fire destroyed the two buildings where the company had begun with the equipment and the tools they contained and 12,000 finished shovels. Fire insurance covered only 10% of the loss, which was estimated at $30,000, the equivalent of perhaps a million dollars in today. And within three weeks, the company was back up and running in temporary wooden buildings. And within a year, the Ameses had built a much larger and more modern facility at a new location. And by 1855, they were producing four times as many shovels as before the fire. So how did they do it? And that's really the, the focus of our presentation, to show how the new Ames Shovel Works was a testament to the business expertise that the family had developed over 50 years. Now, as um, Ed described, this fortune was built on a simple pre-industrial tool, the shovel. Uh, we, I'm not going to uh, talk more about um, Old Oliver. You, you've heard, heard a great deal about him and how he came to Northeastern in 1803, how he um, bought a um, water-driven nail factory and turned that into the site for his initial manufacture of shovels. But what I think we want to focus on is the business innovations, and in particular, his um, ability to break down the manufacturing process into a series of discrete steps that would result in an affordable and a high-quality product. By 1835, it was recorded that 20 different men would work on the making of a single shovel. The shovel works by that time had grown to employ 65 people, it was producing 78,000 shovels a year. They were being sold from Boston to Virginia. So we already have, by the mid-1830s, um, a business that is operating at a national scale um, at significant economies of um, scale. Now, Ed also uh, described how um, Oakes and his uh, brother, Oliver Jr., um, went straight to work for their father. Neither of them ever went to college. Um, and it's not easy to distinguish the specific contributions that Oakes made to the family business because there are relatively few written records of the decisions among the three of them. It's a family business. There are no outside investors at this point. There is no outside board of directors. There's really no need to record major policies in writing. It's obviously something that's being discussed among the father and his two sons. But I think from bo both from you know, what Ed has talked about, about Oakes's character, as well as the relative roles, we can start to make some respective guesses about their um, roles. Now, we know that Oakes was well-versed in all aspects of the business. Um, also, he seems to have had um, a pretty good touch with the workmen, as um, Ed described. So he knew how to make a shovel. He um, knew how to maintain a good relations with the workforce, particularly as it was shifting over to a largely Irish workforce. He also uh, traveled widely. Both of the brothers traveled 
quite a bit around the country. They were searching out new business opportunities. They were looking for ways to improve the manufacturing process. They were also looking for investment opportunities, and um, I'll, I'll come back to those investment opportunities a little later on. Over time, it appears that um, Oliver Jr. would really take on the lead in managing the books and the finances. Um, he was the more studious of the two brothers. That was a role that his son, Frederick Lothrop Ames, would also take on. And so Oakes seems to have been more involved in the ongoing um, administration of the manufacturing process. Um, but also he seems to have had a more outgoing, gregarious personality, looking to make connections um, to continue to kind of be the outside face of the business in that way. So we know in 1844, when old Oliver turned 65, he gave, that's when he gave each, each of his sons a one-third ownership stake, and that's also when he, the business was renamed. So it was renamed at that point the Oliver Ames and Sons Shovel Company. And um, again, as, as Ed mentioned, the, uh, the, the, the father was something of a bully, um, but his sons were highly skilled at this point. They were highly experienced. They were 40 and 37 years old, respectively. Um, and clearly, you know, I, I guess the way I would characterize it is that they were really making the day-to-day -day decisions while their father would retain an effective veto over major policy decisions. Um, but that then, at a certain point, um, shifts. So here's, here, here's, a, here's a little more about the ongoing evolution of the business. Um, here's um, from uh, numbers that Greg has pulled together, the um, jumps in the annual production. Um, you will see that um, by the um, 1830s, uh, they were up to about 100,000 shovels a year. There was a big business crash in 1837, a depression that followed. There was a dip but not much of a dip, and then the production continues to climb. And so by the mid-1840s, um, they've now doubled from that previous peak. They're now manufacturing about 140,000 shovels a year. And they're now, um, th this is the time when uh, canal construction is starting to be replaced by the railroads. Uh, so there are new opportunities for sales. You have the California Gold Rush in 1849. So again, it is a steady growth um, and a steady evolution of the manufacturing process. You know, no single breakthrough, but you know what you know what what real business innovation almost invariably is, which is just ongoing improvement close attention um, to keep improving the quality, keep the prices down, and to develop that national sales network. Um, so you can see there on, on the map um, that they, were, they had sales agents in St. Louis, sales agents in New Orleans. Um, so had a good sense of what the uh, national um, network was like. Now also, as um, Ed you know, was um, describing, they were tied and limited by the hydraulic resources here in southeastern Massachusetts. You did not have the major head of, head of water that you would get on the Merrimack River um, for the uh, plants in Lowell and Lawrence. Um, so they had to be much more kind of diversified. Um, what they had was had developed by the late 1840s was what you might call a regional network of relatively small manufacturing plants 
Um, these are the ones here in Northeastern. There also were ones in North Bridgewater, in West Bridgewater. There was a plant in Stoughton by this time. Um, so collectively, that network of uh, small water-driven plants was their manufacturing facility, and all of them uh, connected pretty much by ox carts. Uh, rail had come down to Stoughton, but had not penetrated to any of these other um, facilities. So now we come to 1852, and I think this is, this is, this is really the breakpoint. And what's so interesting is how quickly and radically the manufacturing process and the entire business becomes utterly transformed in the wake of the fire. And I think what we have to assume is they had been thinking about this already, that Oakes and Oliver Jr. were already investigating the new opportunities of um, steam power, of railroad transport, of... um, of the, the, the improved aspects of heavy mill construction. Together with what Ed was saying, it may well be that they had quite a bit of resistance from their father. And so that it took the kind of what turns out to be the fortuitous event of an apparent catastrophe that was the opportunity to completely and radically um, reshape the uh, business. So here on this image, um, where the arrow is, that is the island. And again, you now see the jump in scale that the fire affords them with the new shovel works that is, begins to be built um, and is very quickly completed in its first phase um, within the first year after the 1852 fire. So again, there are three transformational steps. The first is replacing water power with steam power. The second is replacing these wood frame structures with masonry structures using heavy timber fire-resistant construction. And the third is replacing the ox cart with the railroad. So as far as steam power is concerned, um, they immediately buy two major steam engines from the Corliss Nightingale um, facility down in Providence, Rhode Island. So again, they're fortunate in being only 30 miles away from the leading manufacturer of um, steam engines in the, com- in the country, and they place them. Um, you can see it's the uh, two um, dots. So this is, um, this, is, this is the first steam engine, which is at the joint between the long shop, the major manufacturing facility, and the machine shop here. And then they installed a second steam engine here in the hammer shop, which was built a couple of years later. And so then what you can see with this series of red lines, that is the transmission of power. Um, through a series of rods and belts that then transmits the power from the steam engine to the major 12 trip hammers are in the hammer shop and a whole series of finishing, grinding, working machines, smaller machines at all of the various stations in the manufacturing process are being driven off of belts, off of those rods that go the entire length of uh, of the long shop. So through this, you know, through the, through the new power technology, um, the efficiency, scale, and speed of the manufacturing process takes a big jump. You also have um, now, you also now have um, using the most up-to-date um, industrial architecture, uh, heavy, heavy mill construction. So it's heavy um, uh, masonry walls. Uh, this is a local granite from local quarries. 
and then the uh, heavy timber columns, beams, and roof trusses. It is not entirely, it is not what you would call fireproof. The, the, the point of a mill construction is that because of the thickness of the timbers, if there is a fire, the timbers will char on the outside. But if the fire can be put out quickly, you will not have permanent damage. And if they do burn through, it takes many hours for them to burn through. There would be an opportunity to get the machines, to get the uh, goods out of the facility, and at least save your uh, working plant. Um, and um, again, they start taking out factory mutual fire insurance policies at this time. There were no building codes, but if you belonged to a factory mutual insurance company, as a, as a condition of the coverage, a condition of, along with the premiums, you had to comply with these new standardized construction um, systems that um, had been first pioneered in some of the textile mills, and the Ameses are now applying that to the uh, shovel manufacturing process as well. And then the third element, the third transformational element, is the railroad. Um, as um, Ed had mentioned, the, um, first of all, they needed a larger site, and the fact that Oaks had already bought that um, mill, that, that um, factory site, gave them control of this large open area on the other side of Shovelshop Pond. Um, but I think we can also assume that due to their knowledge of hydraulics, they had to have a pretty good sense of surveying and of basic topographical engineering and would have been able to figure out what was the level ground along which you would run a new rail line south from Stoughton into Northeastern. Um, so again, this, this new location on this side of Shovelshop Pond allowed them to bring the railroad in, and they organized with a number of other local businessmen. They got a corporate charter from the legislature for the Eastern Branch Railroad Company, and by 1857, that, no, I'm sorry, by 1855, there had been a spur line completed from the main line between Boston and Providence running from Stoughton down to Northeastern. So you now had the raw materials, uh, the iron and the wood for the shovel handles, as well as coal for the factory, able to be brought in by rail and the finished materials to be shipped out by rail. Within another 10 years, the uh, Branch Railroad was bought by the old Colony Railroad line. Um, Frederick Ames, um, Oliver Jr.'s son, was a director of the line. The Ameses, I'm, I'm sure, were probably major stockholders in that acquisition. And so the old Colony then continued the line down south to Taunton, from which it was able to continue on to the ports of Fall River and New Bedford. They also double-tracked the line at that point. So again, by 1867, you had complete connection to the uh, regional and, in effect, um, national transportation network from here in Northeastern. So here again is, um, is, is a plan of the, uh, of the, uh, of the factory. Uh, the uh, rail line is in the foreground of that uh, photograph and the, the two yellow lines at the top. And again, you can see how you know, even the linear arrangement of the buildings um, parallel to the rail lines is all designed for kind of maximum efficiency of the manufacturing process. And so here, I think, in this diagram that Chris put together, you know, you can see how they really had thought through and rationalized the production process, uh, the goods coming in uh, by the old colony. Um, by the um, 1860s, they had separate facilities for the uh, production of the handles, 
and on the other end, the production of the shovel blades. They then are brought together, assembled, um, finished, um, to uh, packaged, and then shipped back out by the rail line. The jump in production um, is, is, is really remarkable, as, as I noted. So first, first of all, the um, First of all, the efficiency of the, of the process. I'd said earlier in the 1830s, 20 different men were involved in making an individual shovel. Um, by the 1850s, it was now 50 individual men. So again, you know, that number of individual stations in the process of uh, making the shovel. So within five years, um, by, the, by 1857, the employment and production had quadrupled from what it was before. You now had 330 workers, 636,000 shovels a year. Uh, the Ameses were producing one-third of the entire national output of shovels. Um, again, they weathered the uh, business crash of 1857, the financial panic and um, the depression quite well. And by 1860, they were up another 40%. By now, they were manufacturing over 900,000 shovels a year. Um, so again, um, we're now on, on, the, on the eve of the Civil War um, at the time when Oakes and Oliver Jr. are about to go off. They have built up um, this kind of local, regional business that their father had started into something that was really a, a national powerhouse. It continues. Um, so during the Civil War years, the day-to-day um, -day management of the factory is um, largely now in the hands of the third generation. There are Oakes's sons, um, Oakes Anger and Oliver III, and Oliver Jr.'s son, Frederick. So that triumvirate uh, now effectively become the day-to-day -day managers as Oakes and Oliver had been um, before. And when old Oliver died, he, in his will, left his share to the three grandsons. So he had, you know, kind of faith that this general tr generational transfer was working well, um, gave each of them a one-third, one-third of his one-third. Um, so that, that, transfer, that, that transfer worked very smoothly. And in the years after the Civil War, I know we're, we're now getting a little bit past, but just to kind of complete the story of the shovel works, um, between this end of the Civil War and 1880, the factory continues to be um, expanded further. Um, here's the, this, this uh, bird's eye view shows the um, complete works um, as it essentially had been completed by 1880. Um, these uh, close-ups are how it looked um, in 2008 uh, before the recent redevelopment had begun. And that same, um, that same kind of constructive system of the beautiful granite construction, the heavy timber construction, was used consistently for all 30 years, between 1852 and 1880. Um, so again, what you have here is really one of the best preserved examples of mid-19th century um, factories in the entire country. And from what you know, I think we've really been trying to describe, what we would really see in business history as a very important evolutionary link between the textile mills of the early 19th century and the Fordist factories um, of um, the early 20th century. You know, in its application um, of kind of specialization of labor, the um, efficiency of the manufacturing system, and the um, application of energy and uh, rail transport. So I'll say a few words here also as a bridge to, to this afternoon um, 
about some of Oakes's involvements in other outside investments and some of his early involvement in party politics. Um, so again, there's there's not there's not a great deal great deal here, but and we're we're drawing upon what what Greg uh, Gaylor and others have um, you know have have put together. Um, but Oakes in particular always seems to have been quite interested in outside investments, both for the family's account, but also for his own own account. Um, Ed mentioned how he had bought the. Um, factory building, which ultimately becomes the site of the um, shovel shop. Um, as Ed mentioned, and this is really where Greg did a lot of um, very interesting research, he also seems to have been the silent partner um, for the business of his uh, brother William, who had a company called the Franklin Manufacturing Company, an ironworking company in northern New Jersey. Uh, William was uh, really quite upset by what he viewed as rather... Um, tough, if not even sharp, dealing by his brother, because when the company went bankrupt and was reorganized, Oakes is the one who winds up as the effective owner. And when William moves out to, finally gives up the business and moves out to uh, Minnesota, where he spent the rest of his life, it was Oakes who sells off the real estate and the mineral rights from this company in northern New Jersey um, and uh, seems to have made um, some profit on that. We also know a little bit, um, and um, here I've actually kind of drawn upon what um, Maury Klein has, has, has written about some of the early involvement of the Ameses in, real, in railroads. Um, I've mentioned already that they were among the um, co-venturers in the Eastern Branch Railroad, but that was really a very small local affair. Um, in the early 1860s, um, there was a very successful businessman from New Jersey named James Blair. Um, he was building a series of feeder lines f out across the prairie from Chicago, ultimately out towards Council Bluffs, Iowa, which would become the uh, terminus of the Union Pacific. And so he brought the Ameses in as co-investors in a number of those lines. Um, I also understand that Blair was one of the first people to um, explore this idea of an independent construction company um, owned by the um, stockholders, which would hold the construction contract for the railroad um, as a way, um, one might say, of kind of hedging one, one's bets and trying to ensure a return on one's investment, um, you know, a device that the uh, Crédit Mobilier um, would, um, would develop further. We also know that the Ameses were early investors in the Central Pacific Railroad. Um, this is described by Bain in his book um, on the Transcontinental Railroad Empire Express, uh, where he describes how in 1862, Collis Huntington uh, came looking for people to buy bonds of the Central Pacific on the East Coast. Um, they needed cash at a key point in the early construction of the railroad. Um, Huntington came to Boston. He knew of the Ameses because he'd been buying their shovels for many years to sell in his store in Sacramento to the uh, gold miners. Um, the, um, he, he called upon Oliver Jr. Um, Oliver Jr. did not want to buy bonds. Um, he preferred something with more security, and so he made a short-term loan um, for $200,000. It was secured by a personal guarantee by Huntington, and he also asked for the bonds as security on the loan. So um, 
they were, so he was, he was taking a very cautious, um, conservative view of investing in this uh, rather risky venture. And I think what we also kind of, what I also get, get from this is at this point, up through 1862, Ames has really had no experience in actually building and, building and running a railroad. You know, other than the, uh, than, the, than the Eastern Branch, they seem to have really been passive investors in these other ventures. So these were two brothers with enormous business acumen, but when it came to running and building a railroad, I think we have to say that they were naive. Um, the other thing that I want to uh, talk about um, in Ames's, in Oakes's early coming up to 1862 is his involvement with party politics. As um, Ed had mentioned, the Ameses were staunch Whigs, and I think you know it's fair to assume this was because of the party's American system, their support for protective tariffs and for government investment in a national transportation infrastructure. Both of those were, um, plat- were, were policies that very much would have been in the interest of the Ameses as manufacturers looking to protect their goods against um, rival shovels coming in from Britain and also being able to um, sell them more efficiently into the national marketplace. Um, as Ed mentions, it, you know, it, it's interesting, it would be interesting to try to find out more about that strange transitional period with the know-nothings. And, and there certainly was some involvement um, from know-nothing voters who then moved over into the uh, foundation of the Republican Party in Massachusetts as elsewhere. Um, but um, with Oakes and Oliver Jr., it would probably, I think, pr- presumably be the Republican Party's interest in a pro-business um, platform. And in the way they took on the uh, Whig policies and actually ultimately really advanced them with great success during the Civil War, um, that would, I, I would assume, would be the primary reason why the Ameses became staunch Republicans. What we do know at the same time is that the Ameses were not very experienced in actually running for office. Um, it is recorded that old Oliver was no lover of office. He had a um, seat for three terms as a state representative in the 1830s, and then he gave up that seat. Um, In um, 1845, he was asked to run for state senate. He did that reluctantly, served a single term, and again, that was his last time in the state legislature. Um, Oliver Jr., Oakes' brother, served two terms as a state senator, um, separated in 1852 and then again in 1857. That was his only involvement in electoral politics. And so then Oakes was the one who got drawn in in the uh, state party in Massachusetts. In 1860, he was invited to serve on the executive council. It, it's, it actually still exists under the state le- constitution. It is a, essentially an advisory body to the governor. The governor was John Andrew. Um, and after two years on the executive council in 1862, the party leaders asked him to run, run for Congress. Again, he was reluctant thought it would interfere with his um, attention to his business, um, but he agreed, and uh, the rest of that part of the story um, we'll, we'll hear more about after lunch. So now I want to spend a little, we want to kind of um, spend the, the last part of our presentation kind of talking about, continuing to talk about architecture, 
um, but talking about how Oakes and his brother Oliver become memorialized in architecture uh, through the designs of H.H. Richardson. Now, um, Oakes, we have to say, doesn't seem to have had much interest in architecture. Um, he lived his entire life in the uh, wood frame house that is at the uh, top of this picture, which he actually um, lived in with his father. His father had one half of this large but quite simple wood frame house. Oakes and Evelina and their family lived in the other half. Um, in the 1850s, however, other family members started to get a little more stylish. Um, Oakes's son, Oakes Anger, um, built a very handsome Gothic revival cottage, uh, which is uh, the one behind the library. And then in the, uh, later in the 1850s, they turned to George Snell, who was a fashionable Boston architect, designed quite a few houses in the Back Bay. And so the image on the right-hand side is the house that Oakes's son, Oliver III, built to uh, Snell's design um, on his estate. And the house at the bottom is the house that Oakes's brother, Oliver Jr., built. So that's the one that's, that you see today on Main Street, um, just south of the Unity Church. Uh, so those are two Snell designs. Um, but Oakes, again, continued to live in, the, in, in that simple wood frame house. And the shovel works themselves never had an architect involved. To, there's no evidence of that. I think our assumption is the Ameses themselves would have laid it out in collaboration with their factory mechanics and with local um, masons who built the complex. And so part of the fascination of Northeastern is the contrast between the more ceremonial architecture of Richardson and the kind of resolutely utilitarian structures of the shovel works at the core of it. But after the death of um, Oakes and his brother, it's the third generation then that really turned to architecture and turned to uh, this enormously talented and flamboyant man, Henry Hobson Richardson. Um, Richardson, in the, at this time, was still in his late 30s, but he was well on his way to becoming the most preeminent architect in the country, in particular thanks to uh, Trinity Church in Boston, uh, which had just been completed to his uh, design in 1877. And that's the year in which the uh, family first turns to him. So it's actually first Oliver Jr.'s children, um, Frederick and his sister Helen, who hire Richardson to design the Oliver Ames Free Library. Two years later, it's Oakes's children who um, invite Richardson to do a second project on the adjacent site, the uh, Oakes Ames Memorial Hall. And so um, what, what I'd like to do here is to... Um, sort of in, invite you to see these two buildings as um, portraits in stone and to see the ways in which contemporary viewers would have understood the library and the hall as reflecting the two very different um, men whom they commemorated. So here's Oliver Jr. and the um, Oliver Ames Free Library. It's a building that is set back from the street. It's uh, behind a stone retaining wall and a level lawn. Um, the street facade is asymmetrical but very precisely balanced. You can see how the materi exterior materials are quite restrained. It's that kind of light gray, pa that pale kind of grayish brown granite. Um, the color is heightened by the um, sandstone trim and by the red tile roof, but overall, you know, the feeling is of one of calmness and restraint. Um, 
And so um, if, if we think about this in terms of how Oliver Jr. was um, viewed at the time, his public manner was described as courteous and restrained. He kept his enthusiasms and passions under check and revealed them only privately. Oliver, it was written, had a rare faculty of bearing heavy burdens without worry or fret, and of laying beside business cares to enter heartily into the enjoyment of social companionship and religious worship. Discriminating in his estimates of men, he never uttered a harsh word of anyone. He was a lover of all practical information, and his mind was well stored with reading, as well as by wide experience among men. Interested in education and philanthropy, he was ever on the side of reform and progress in all the movements for the welfare of society. You know, so, so there is, of course, a, um, you know, there's, a, there's a degree of, um, of, of exaggeration, no doubt, but, but I think you know, the sense of the man and the building seems well-matched. Now, Oakes's character was very different. And in the remembrance that was published for his uh, memorial service, we find this description. Oakes Ames was one of the characteristic products of New England, a man of primitively simple habits, a man of deeds rather than words, of plain personal address that might be thought homely, patient as the laboring ox under his self-imposed burden. His friendships were tenacious and strong, his affections were deep and warm, and under a rugged interior he carried the heart of a child. Now, even in this Victorian prose, I think we can sense the mixture of recklessness and the sometimes naive lack of concealment uh, that would get Oakes into so much trouble. So, as we can you know, expect from this description, you know, in the architecture of the Oaks Hall is very different from the architecture of Oliver's library. It's a dramatic, even a romantic exterior. It's a building that's meant to be seen diagonally, the way the three-dimensional mass grows out of a rocky ledge with that corner tower that really pins it to the rock. The exterior materials and details are much more varied than the library. Along with granite, sandstone, and the red tile roof, you've also got dark red brick and heavy timbering around the corner. There are lively carvings of local plants, animals, and birds that embellish the capitals of the exterior arcade. And the collaboration with Olmsted is really central to the Oaks Ames Hall. That here, his landscape design further underscores that contrast between the two buildings, between the two brothers. That level lawn that's in front of the library runs, ends abruptly, and all of a sudden you've got this steep slope that goes shooting up. The long grass is left deliberately shaggy on that slope. You've got stone ledges that are pushing out of the soil. Some of the stone ledges even break their way through the uh, staircase that rises up. And so at this point, what we'd also like to do is to, to share a few of the drawings of the design process that, that uh, produced the um, Oaks Ames Hall. And um, here I also want to uh, mention our collaborator in this um, project, um, Hope Mayo, who's here with us. Hope is the uh, longtime um, curator of prints and drawings at the Houghton Library at Harvard and has really been the keeper of this amazing collection of 4,000 drawings by Richardson and his office that's at Harvard. And um, Chris and Hope and I are working with Jim O'Gorman, the great expert on Richardson, on what will become the first full publication of the drawings of H.H. Richardson and his office. Um, so we're going to share a few of those, most of which have never been uh, published before. 
And the very first one is the only drawing that seems to have survived from Richardson's own hand. Um, Richardson would do these very simple sketches, and then he would hand off the design to his assistants, who would then work it up in detail to his critique. Um, so here is the first known sketch of the Oaks Ames Hall. I think there are two things that really stand out. First of all is that key element of the corner tower. You know, the way that this is a building, as I, as I said, that is meant to be seen on the diagonal with that tower that really pins it to the hill. But the other thing you see here is, if you compare this with the final building, this is much looser and more jumbled. Um, you know, there are various pieces, these various gables fighting with each other. And that, again, is part of what is remarkable about Richardson's design process is the way he keeps refining. He is constantly tightening up the design, bringing the elements together into this kind of rigorous clarity. And it's a clarity that he learned as a student at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris and that you see if you, you know, again, comparing this drawing with what he finally creates with the Oaks Ames Hall. The other side of Richardson's architecture, which we see at the hall and we can see in the drawings, is this kind of deep delight and pleasure in kind of colors and textures and materials, you know, really coming out of medieval and vernacular architecture, uh, which he learned from his English contemporaries, John Ruskin and William Morris. And so there are wonderful drawings in the Harvard archive showing these young architects, uh, most of whom had been trained at MIT um, in the new architecture school there, and kind of developing these details. Uh, this is um, working on the uh, timbered um, dormer window when you go around the corner to the uh, side of the building. Um, but that's just one of a whole series of these design studies. And that was really Richardson's method, was really to let these young architects loose, let them play with different ideas. And then he would kind of play the role of the kind of the critic of coming in and picking the ones that worked best and that would best cohere with one another. Um, so again, on the, the arcade, um, there are again, you know, many drawings of the column capitals, of the arches, of various ways to work with those um, details. Um, you can see that even in the uh, final construction drawings that went to Norcross Brothers, who were Richardson's favorite, favorite um, contractors who built the library and the Oaks Ames Hall. Um, this is the uh, front elevation when you start to look up close, um, there are the signs of the zodiac around the tower that the uh, draftsmen um, you know, worked out in rough outline for John Evans, the um, architectural sculptor, to um, finally do. Um, even um, Oakes' initials, OA, are um, in the uh, arch over that central dormer that is, um, that is at the, uh, the top of the, um, entrance, of the entrance facade. Um, so again, it's this wonderful balance of rigor and profusion um, that, that's you know, central to Richardson's architecture and is really central to the Oaks Ames Hall. Um, and then finally, this drawing is, is made one of our favorites um, because here the building is kind of ghosted in and it's the hillside. It's the rocky hillside and that amazing staircase that rises up um, that, um, that, that emerges and reminding us that this is really a collaborative project between Richardson and the Olmsted office of building and landscape together. And so just, um, you know, you've, you know the Oaks Ames Hall, you know that wonderful stair, you come up to the top of it, 
And again, it's not only an, a wonderful architectural sequence, but we think you have to think of that top of the staircase as a viewing platform from which you could look down upon the shovel works. So you're looking down upon the uh, source of the family's uh, wealth and power um, from, the, uh, front, front, from the front steps of the Oaks Ames Hall. Now, when the hall was um, dedicated in 1881, um, the event really marked the reinstatement of Oaks's reputation. Um, over 400 um, special guests came on a train from Boston. Among them were the governor, members of Congress, the leaders of the state legislature, railroad men, merchants, bankers, and the representatives of every leading business profession and calling, according to the local newspaper. Letters of tribute were sent by politicians, judges, and clerics from Massachusetts and across the country. And the well-known uh, preacher, Edward Everett, Edward Everett Hale decried the dark day when men who were in all regards his inferiors were bent on destroying his reputation. The only problem with this great event was that when everybody got off the train, there was this crummy little wooden shack next to the train tracks, and that was the station that they got off into to, in order to then walk up the hill to the Oaks Ames Hall. So the Ameses were really chagrined by this, and within days, Frederick Ames, who was a director of the old, of the old Colony Railroad, offered out of his own pocket to pay for a new train station. So um, here is, um, in the photograph here, that kind of wooden shed is the former train station, <clears throat> and here is the Richardson train station that Frederick paid for. And again, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful building, another of Richardson's um, great masterpieces. And here is um, an engraving that was used as company letterhead um, from the 1880s. And what I think is really marvelous about this image is the way it ties together Richardson's architecture of the train station, which is in the lower right, with the factory, the source of their wealth, and with the train. You know, that they're, they're, it, it cannot be you know, accidental that this train, you know, chugging along um, with smoke coming behind it, it's actually going over that cut, which is still there today, but that cut looks like the cuts that the Union Pacific had to go across with all of those washes and stream beds as it made its way across the, uh, across the, uh, the Great Plains. And so, of course, if we then figuratively travel on that train 2,000 miles to the west, um, here, as uh, Fred mentioned, is um, kind of the capstone to Richardson's monuments for the Ameses, the uh, pyramid that was built by the Union Pacific. Um, it was initially uh, proposed in 1875, um, but in the wake of the scandal, the U.S. Attorney General had a lawsuit that was working its way through the courts. He was trying to claw back the federal subsidies from the directors and the corporation on um, grounds of fraud. Um, in 1878, the U.S. Supreme Court turned down the um, suit, um, found there was no grounds for it, and at that point, the company, which by this point, Frederick Ames was, on, was the chair of the executive committee, um, felt comfortable to proceed with the monument. Um, it was now going to memorialize both Oaks and Oliver Jr. And um, as, as Fred, Fred described, it, it is, has been wonderfully um, preserved um, due, to, due to the efforts of, um, of so many people. And then finally, a few images about the, we'll come back to the shovel works. Um, you know, as we've heard, the shovel works um, 
kind of slumbered from the, 18, from the 1970s onward. Arnold Tophius bought them. Um, they, the buildings were essentially preserved. They were used as a rather sleepy um, office and industrial park. Um, and then in um, 2008, um, local developers bought the site. And um, here, here's a little, little um, of a couple of the, the, the local headline. Um, eight of the buildings would have been destroyed or, or really um, bastardized. They were going to cut a 30-foot wide hole through the middle of the long shop, um, wrapping um, very unsympathetically designed structures on top of them. At uh, one point um, in the proceedings, the um, developers parked this, um, this bright yellow um, backhoe on the, on the lawn in front of the uh, company offices as a threat of what it was they would like to do to the buildings. Um, uh, police were called out. There were threats of fisticuffs. Um, you know, it was, uh, there were lawsuits of, of various kinds. Um, but, you know, thanks, I think, really to the efforts of so many people here in this room, um, you know, who for got together to form the uh, Friends of the Ames Shovel Works, um, got wonderful support from the town government. Um, Chris and I were, you know, kind of privileged to be a part of that. And um, we even hired our own architects and planners who came up with a counter plan and ran their own financial pro forma to demonstrate that you could actually make more success if you preserved the buildings and used federal and state tax credits. And that ultimately, wonderfully, is what happened. Um, Beacon Communities, um, a very um, you know, thoughtful developer who had experience with historic properties, bought the site, um, the town voted um, by a 65% vote in town meeting to devote $9 million in public funds to help support the project, the preservation of the historic buildings, the creation of um, open space, and with, with the results that um, you, you see today and anyone who comes over today um, for, for, the, for the event, you know, we'll, we'll see you know, the, really the splendid um, preservation um, for continued use as mixed income housing. Um, you know, I, so I think the remarkable support the community has given to this project is really a testament to the um, achievements of um, Oakes and his brother and, and his family. Um, so thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, Fred, do we have, Fred and Nicole, do we have time for a few questions? Yeah, okay, so um, any, any, any questions? Yes. Ah. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I, didn't, I did not know that story. Yeah, the, 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 Im yeah, the image here, I should go back. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, so, so, so the bell there in the foreground is the, uh, the factory bell that survives to this day here in uh, Northeastern. Um, I, I didn't know the, the story about the other, the other bell in Ames, Iowa. Yes, yes, it is, it is there. Now. Yes, it was found during the renovation and uh, is kind of given this place of pride in the complex. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
No, it was not. It was not meant to be a town hall in a governmental sense. It, it was. I think it would have been better to think of it as something like a lyceum. You know, it was meant for lectures, for concerts, and for social gatherings, which has really been kind of the continued use. And you'll, and you'll find books on architectural history will make that will make that mistake. Well, but I think yes, over there. Now, uh, that monumental thing you just showed us. Well, it is it is in Sherman, Wyoming, which was at which was the as I understand was the highest point, um, the highest elevation of the Union Pacific Railroad. They then the railroad tracks, however, were relocated away from right away from the site at some time. So it now is apparently. Largely in isolation, although I'm told there is a wonderful bed and breakfast where you can stay and, and look out on the monument. Wow. Yeah. So higher than any point on the Central Pacific as well. Fascinating. About a thousand feet higher than the Sierra. Is that right? Okay. Hmm. Yeah, if, if you've read Maury Klein's you know, great history of the Union Pacific begins with a really evocative description of the, of the memorial. I mean... It, it, it really is, it's, it's, you know, intertwined with the history of the railroad. Yes, TJ. Uh, this is the Ames Shovel Works. That's a great question. You know, Greg, what, what do you know? Were there, were there rival competitors in the national marketplace up, up through the 19th century? There were rivals. One of their solutions is it's emerging and acquire the I mean, the other part of the story, I want to take it to the end, that no one's, I mean, I filled with a little bit, no one's really written this. The point, late 19th and 20th century history of the company really reflects the evolution of American industry, mm-hmm, uh, including leverage buyouts and foreign competition. Um, but the other point, that was, so, so that was one of their solutions. So they ended up having plants in West Virginia and Indiana and so forth, really the farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny part of the story is there's a huge competition with uh, two temper the domain competitor in the mid 20th century, and that's now it's aims to temper that ended up being a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we exist still today. I think there was a question, yes, in the back there. Uh, you mentioned Olmstead, and I wondered if you knew what the Olmstead was wrong, and so if you had some information here, or whether that the design was just to style the dead. Oh no, no, they're, no. They're very, no. They're very definitely are drawings, and there is there is correspondence. So there is correspondence from Olmsted um, about his 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 unhappiness with the plants dying on the rockery, the the Civil War monument in front of the Oaks Ames Hall. Um, there are notes on the drawings that Chris and I have looked at that, that kind of show that the Oaks Ames Hall landscaping was a collaborative process. Um, we also we all have a letter about Richardson and Olmsted coming to visit Langwater, Frederick Ames's estate, to talk about where to put a windmill and uh, where where to put an ice house. So yeah, so so there, there very definitely is, um, is is documentary proof of, of Olmsted's involvement here. Not not. Not perhaps on the uh, library. Um, we, 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 don't, we, we don't know whether he was involved with, with the landscape design of the library, or, but certainly from the hall onward he was. Yes, and, and then after that over there. Yeah. Going back to the uh, manufacturing and shoveling <coughs> in the Civil War, certainly they made lots of shovels, and that was 
excellent for the company. But my question <coughs> pertains to the number of workers at the factory. Did the fact that the war broke it, did they lose people who were in the factory <coughs> who volunteered for the Civil War? Yeah. And at some point, did it impact them negatively, <coughs> at least when the war started? I don't know. Greg or Ed, do either of you uh, know anything about that? I don't think the number of people at the factory dropped that much. Uh, you know, until 1863, there was no draft, so you could pay. Um, certainly show the production stayed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way that the end of the war was going to kind of shed the work, it was not so good. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I just follow up. I asked that question because I'm from Sandwich, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I relate a lot of this to the Boston Sandwich Glass Corporation. Mm-hmm. And that factory had about the same time <coughs> period. And it did lose people to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It, it slowed their operation back. Huh. And it took them more than a year to gather back up. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know here. I think there's a question over there. Yeah. In terms of the shovel uh, company, I believe it was Richard Hart that was president by 1931. And he managed the merger of all companies and the Well, one of the things also that I think is, is worth noting that, that makes the shovel work so noteworthy is um, after, after really the, the major burst of construction, which was 1852 up to 1880, there are relatively few changes after that. So where most factory complexes, buildings were being torn down, replaced by, by new construction, fortunately, that didn't happen here. Interestingly, even, even the um, systems were not ele- – electrification came in, started to come in the early 20th century, but there was a major push, um, a, uh, a refurbishment by the Stone and Webster Engineering Company in the mid-1920s. So at that point, they kind of that it was not until then that they actually took out the old steam engines and and finally finished taking out all the belts. And so as a result, we've got some wonderful documents here in um, Stonehill that Chris and I have been able to refer to, um, insurance company records from the early 20th century, but that still list all of the machines and when they were bought and going back to the 1850s. So we've got you know a very the physical plant and documentation of how a factory of this era worked um, in, in remarkable detail. Yeah, Greg, did you have a comment? Yeah, a couple of comments. So <coughs> in addition to the, uh, the machinery lasting a long time, they, they continued some water power on this side. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a water wheel that we found underneath the machine shop where they Mm-hmm. Yes, it was national very quickly, but they were buying iron and steel from Europe, which is relatively common, but I still think we're mm-hmm. in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1850s, they were a major supplier to Australia for the Australian gold So mm-hmm. this is an international company really early on. Yeah. And the other point I just wanted to mention, uh, and I don't know if you come across it, um, I remember one ledger in particular from folks, and I don't remember the exact period, I'll guess it's uh, 1840, 1850s. Um, that sort of counters this, his business acumen, I think, is an interesting question. And one thing I remember, he was totally very savvy about was loaning money and trading notes. 
I do believe there are there are some references. We have this has been outside of our research, so we haven't looked at it in detail. But um, Oaks got into um, a lot of um, a lot of personal financial difficulty around 1870. Probably the uh, the financial um, you know kind of panic that you know happened when there was the attempt to corner the gold market. Um, and on his death in 1873, apparently his sons took his sons a good year or so to clean up the estate, and there was a real possibility that they might have to kind of declare bankruptcy for the estate, but I believe they were able to to work it to work it through and to satisfy um, the creditors. So yeah, so so there were, but whether he, that was bad or you know he 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 took risks, no doubt. I guess the other thing that I think is very interesting, though, with anyone here who's been in a partnership, is. I think we have to sort of see Oakes and Oliver as really being partners and that their complementary skills may have been greater than what either of them could have achieved on their own. And we'll never really know exactly what they did, but, you know, successful partnerships are, you know, kind of have a kind of organic um, nature that goes beyond uh, the individuals. And while I'm sure they had disagreements, you know, it seems to have been a very successful um, a partnership from a from a business viewpoint. Great. Yes. Yes, Maury. Uh, in that picture you showed uh, with the dots of the first steam engine that they uh, yeah. put in. And my question is, in, in the stuff that you all have been looking through, did you find any drawings that sort of referred to how that influenced the inner architecture of the building? Well, certainly the, um, yeah, so let me get back to this. So, this is um, so. This is the hammer shot, and so you know, so the, so the trip hammers are by far the heaviest, you know, most energy demanding um, machines. And so you can see they're really they're actually consolidated quite tightly around that centrally located um, engine, presumably sort of with, with um, rods going out of both sides. For the rest, I, I believe that most of the machines in the long shop were relatively, had a relatively light draw. You know, they were grinding, polishing machines. And, you know, Chris has come across some, um, you know, a number, a number of references in, in contemporary, you know, kind of business journals about the very great expertise the Ames has had, how precisely um, worked out the and balanced this system of rods and belts were and yeah um yes Does and quite horrendous <laughs> quite horrendous. yeah there, there there are there are there are accounts of just the constant thumping and thudding in the whole the range of noises and you know yeah there a lot pe- 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 a lot of people must have lost their hearing um, working there. Yeah, I think the vibration, I mean, that was another reason why they moved to that heavy timber construction. It was, the, you know, the rods exerted a kind of a vibration, constant vibration on the building. The trip hammers, you know, would, would have also just un- exerted enormous kind of vibrational effects. Oh, 
Well, this, this, was, well, this was great, and so th thanks again, and um, look forward to this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Uh, the plan now is just to have lunch and to be back at, at 1 o'clock. And I, again, I want to remind you of uh, Nicole and the archives and the shovel collection tour. Okay, here's Nicole. The shovel collection is located in Cushing Martin Hall. If you go out these double doors, walk straight toward the clock. They'll be on your left. Um, I am headed there now. You're welcome to come there and then come back and enjoy lunch. Um, Maury will start speaking about 1 o'clock, so you have some time.